You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Today, we're going to talk about intelligence and espionage in America's forgotten war, the Korean War. You'll recall that in June 1950, the Korean War started when communist North Korean forces stormed across the border into the South. The United States and the United Nations soon joined in, helping to defend the South. Later, China entered the war, almost hurling American forces right off the Korean Peninsula. The war actually went on until July 1953 when the armistice was signed, though technically there hasn't been a peace treaty, so technically a state of war continues on the Korean Peninsula to this day. Today we have two really distinguished visitors here who can talk about that war and more importantly for our purposes about intelligence and espionage in it. We have Colonel Douglas Dillard and Mr. James M. H. Lee. Colonel Dillard is a career U.S. Army intelligence officer, uh, had many assignments around the U.S. Army, was, was a young lieutenant in Operation Dragoon, the invasion of southern France in 1944 in World War II, where he had then occasion to work with the French resistance in the Maritime Alps, subsequently served in the Korean War, later on in the Vietnam War, and he retired in 1977 from the Defense Intelligence Agency. We also have with us Mr. Lee, who also has a long and distinguished career in the United States government. He retired in 1994 with 41 years of service, almost 30 of it at the United Nations Military Armistice Commission. Also in the 1950s, Mr. Lee was a translator for the G2, that's the intelligence shop, of the 1st Marine Division, and later a project officer for various intelligence operations in Korea that we'll hear about today. Interestingly, Mr. Mr. Lee is himself originally from North Korea, and in 2002, he got a rare opportunity to visit North Korea, not only Pyongyang, but to actually visit his old hometown, an opportunity not vouchsafed to many North Koreans. So, we'll start with Colonel Dillard. Colonel Dillard, in 1952, you are a lieutenant, and you arrive in Korea, and you're assigned to something called the 8240th Army Unit. Can you tell us a little bit about this uh, this uh, uh, strangely named unit and, and what its function was. The unit was uh, directly under the control of General Willoughby, uh, MacArthur's G2. So MacArthur's intelligence officer. Therefore, uh, it was supported 8th Army, but was not under any 8th Army control. And it ran uh, two divisions. One was an intelligence division, which uh, Mr. Lee and I were a part of. And I was... Uh, 
uh, with the uh, both the aviary and TLO for a while. The other division was the partisan division, and uh, we referred to North Korean irregulars as guerrillas and the South Korean agents, I mean, par- uh, uh, as partisans to have a difference in the terminology. And the uh, operations were uh, based on the offshore islands off the west coast of Korea from the Yalu River all the way down to uh, the Han River. So the islands off of the North Korean coast, yes. these partisans were operating yes. from. Yes, and on the east coast, they had less success because of the mountainous terrain and the difficulty and the mobility moving around and concealing your operations. Um there were boat operations with landings on both coasts. And, of course, the airborne was aviary. And then the line crossers, which were TLO. And uh, there was a, a... And TLO stands for... Tactical Liaison Office. A and nice were, generic, uh, generic name like so many names in the intelligence business. Yes, of course. And uh, the TLO teams consisted of approximately five uh, personnel, and one officer and uh, four or five enlisted men. And then the the agents that they used to cross the lines collecting tactical intelligence. There were both male and female agents. As a matter of fact, some of the female ladies had babies. And in the early stages of the war, when the line was very fluid, the ladies would take their baby and then they could claim if they were uh, stopped by a North Korean or Chinese that they were separated from their family and they were trying to get relocated, uh, relocate their family. And therefore, escape, but uh, that didn't uh, work all the time. So uh, we had, uh, within the 8240th Army now, a joint operation that began in the latter part of 1951 because other before that time, there were various activities, but they were all controlled by different units, such as the Far East Command, the CIA, uh, 8th Army. And now we have the, the first uh, uh cohesive effort within the 40th. Okay. So if I understand uh, your biography, then when you came to this, uh, you know, sort of mess in some sense, bureaucratically, that was the 8240th, you were put in charge of something called aviary or operation aviary. You mentioned it briefly. Can you focus on what, what did aviary do? What was their, what was their function? Operation aviary was uh, comprised of uh, two officers and about, uh, 10 or 12 or 15, it varied uh, depending on our replacement uh, effectiveness. And these were all <clears throat> very experienced airborne troopers that uh, practically all of them had been in World War II. As my people rotated, had a constant supply of very experienced jump masters. And that's what we really needed because first we had to do the map reconnaissance uh, jointly with the Air Force and select the drop zone that we could hit within the, the vicinity of the target, whether it be for an agent drop or a partisan unit drop. And <clears throat> we conducted then resupply missions uh, to keep these operations that were s- still ongoing behind the, the lines and did radio intercepts. And we'd have an interpreter in the plane and fly over an area and pick up uh, a quick uh, report of OB information, or just a o- OB being order of battle, battle or okay. determine the, the the team was still operating. So aviary then was a basically an operation to insert and supply and perhaps also extract uh, uh, 
Koreans and Chinese as intelligence agents behind the North Korean lines and also to uh, perform similar functions for the for the Korean partisans. Then. Right. Okay. Um, for for the sake of our listeners, can you distinguish? You've mentioned here dropping in agents. You've also mentioned supporting partisans. Can you tell me what were these agents meant to do, and how many of them would go in at one time, and how does how does that compare with what the partisans were doing, and and the, and the sort of the size of the partisan effort? Help help us distinguish those two different kinds of functions: agents versus partisans. On the offshore islands, there were uh, various partisan units, and they were given a name of either a uh, a wolf pack, an element of wolf pack, which operated in one area, and leopard that operated in another area. But then the, to identify them simply, they were all called donkey teams, donkey, donkey. one through 24. And uh, they, they were out on these islands and uh, would conduct uh, short penetration operations with a boat landing and either raid or sabotage. A, a village and try and, and uh, capture the uh, local communist officials or kill them if they put up a fight or blow bridges or do other things to damage the uh, so similar infrastructure on the coast. And it was so effective that the Chinese had to devote a division to the the coastal area to, uh, you know, to prohibit that. And every now and then they would run a raid on the island and our uh, uh, partisans would have to flee south until the uh, they withdrew because they'd come on and do a quick operation to dis- dismantle that operation. Then they'd go back on the peninsula. As a matter of fact, the island that was shelled yesterday yesterday was the it was the base for leopard operation. Pyongyang does we call it in those days. They call it a little different name now. So the so the partisans were there basically to harass the North Korean forces and the Chinese forces behind their lines, uh, much in the same way. Then, correct me if I'm wrong, that say the French Resistance or the Yugoslav partisans during World War II were were harassing the the, the German occupiers. Correct. Okay. Right. Tell now, me about tell, the, agents the agents. were different. Yes. They would they could drop either one agent or three or four agents, and I'm sure Mr. Lee can comment on some of that himself. But uh, we would have four or five aircraft every night during the moon phase, so that we could fly in those mountains and uh, the quite often the agent was selected to go to an area that he initially came from because most of our agents were North Korean practically all of them as a matter of fact and the idea was that they could go back and mingle with their family or friends and develop a, uh, a net and uh, in some cases, we equip them with a radio. And I know in once – If I can interrupt you, develop a net. You mean a net of, a, of a, agents a, to report to them, of yes. sources to report to them, and they would report this intelligence information back to the United States and the, and the, and the UN command. That's, that's correct. Okay, in, uh, in Wang'e province, which is uh, – it's right – it borders on the DMs. As a matter of fact, it's split. There were so many uh, cooperating people there that the intelligence net spread almost all the way – all the way across that, that particular state or province, as they call it. And it was very effective. Up north, it was a little more difficult. And sometimes the, you know, the, uh, the operation would last for a short period of time, and then we don't know what happened to it. But, and over there's a hill or a mountain near Wonsan Harbor that I put a team out three times, and they would stay there maybe uh, four, three or four months. And then they would conceal their gear, exfiltrate back through the lines, get a little R&R, retrain new targets and uh, 
uh, fresh equipment and I'd take them back and drop them. And they operated uh, more in a tactical mode because they were observing movement along the roads and uh, uh, tracking uh, the different type of the Chinese or North Korean units. Okay. Mr. Lee, uh, 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 Colonel Dillard's mentioned the North Koreans here who were the backbone of this operation, uh, the, of these operations, who were actually going into North Korea. Uh, you were one of these uh, North Koreans involved in this. How did you come to be, uh, how did you come to, to meet Colonel Dillard or then Lieutenant Dillard and get, uh, get uh, connected with these activities? He asked me to go to Tegu and then join this particular group as 8240 or so Forest Command these detachment, but this was special operation and it was just they got this operation established and then i was recruited as a translator uh, and a helper for the program and i was a korean guy was trained uh, rather born in, born and raised in, in china in shanghai spoke french chinese so we used him as a uh, chinese translator and i was acting as a Translator between Chinese, you spoke Korean, Korean guy spoke fluent Chinese, and then uh, American project officer. That was my job. And the purpose of the program was to collect information on the Chinese Communist Forces, CCF, Chinese Communist Forces, CCF, troops moving south. Didn't have any way to find out what's going on because we came back from North Korea, retreated from North Korea, and then uh, Chinese would get there or they just keep, keep the coming south. And then we, we need to collect in, in intelligence information on these Chinese food, Chinese troops. So that was our operation. And I was very much limited and then uh, uh, could not speak about, talk about the operation to begin with. It was very secret. Yeah. So sometimes you would actually go out on the aircraft with agents or with partisans who were being dropped in. You'd go, you'd, go, you'd, fly, you'd fly with them. There was not, this is not, that was not my area, but uh, they were already recruited and trained and then well trained. And uh, my job, our job was to uh, get the target from uh, G2, Division G2s, and then uh, get a target and then drop them off uh, by the aviary people, drop them off at the target and have them travel all the way together with Chinese forces to the front, and then they jump across the line, and then we pick them up. And I, I, pick, I pick them up and then, then uh, bring them back to Seoul, and then, then uh, debrief them, and then uh, provide the report to the, the headquarters G2. We had about 82 to 85 percent success. What do you mean by success? 82 to 85 percent of those agents were dropped they came back through. Some of them didn't make it. They killed or some got lost. They didn't come back. But 82 to 83, around that number. And I thought we, uh, we had a pretty good success in our mission to collect in, in information on Chinese forces coming south, moving south. And uh, the G2 uh, Army, rather uh, Washington, uh, US, U.S. Army G2, Front page had a report on from those uh, uh, agents we penetrated and came back with uh, 
uh, reports. Help us imagine something here. So you'd sometimes be on these aircraft uh, that were flying over North Korea or behind North Korean lines ready to drop yeah. agents. Um, what would the mood be like? Presumably these flights are happening in the middle of the night. What's it like on that airplane uh, with, you know, sitting alongside these people who are about to jump into, uh, into uh, enemy territory at uh, tremendous risk to their lives? I felt like uh, uh, after all, this, these are my people, my teams. So I should go on a mission as far as I could go. And I, I wanted us, uh, to go as far as I can go, that is to drop some by air. So I went with a team, every team, wow, Chinese team, and get on the uh, aviary section aircraft, uh, called the Baker flight at Yoido, and then went to the, flew to the destination, and then I packed on their back and said, well, good luck, and you come back, and I'll pick you up, and then bring, bring you back to our detachment. So that was my job. And then uh, <coughs> I bring them back, and I debriefed them on their mission, and collected information and then provide the information to G2, I am, and back to Washington and so forth. I might add to that. Yeah, please. The, <clears throat> on the flights, and I think I've probably dropped 500 agents or partisans during the year I was there. None of them ever hesitated. To jump out of the plane. That's right. And we get them uh, in the plane. It's very quiet. And, of course, there's a communication problem in being able to to speak to them either in Korean or Chinese. And Mr. Lee, of course, handled his group very well, being aboard the aircraft. But they were given the sign. They knew it when the red light came on, they were to stand up. We trained them just like we train our own people. I never had one hesitate. They were ready to go. Dedicated people yeah. had a mission. Were there security issues? Were there security problems you faces, faced? Were, did the North Koreans or the Chinese attempt to penetrate your operations? And did you, in fact, lose a significant number of agents once they were, once they were dropped? Yeah. They, uh, as the, <clears throat> the war settled down and everything became more stabilized, therefore it became more organized. And the security nets uh, really tightened up, so it, it became uh, much more difficult to run an operation, and therefore there were uh, many, many compromises as a result of that, both in the uh, the in the agent operation and in the uh, the partisan operations. As a matter of fact, on the East Coast, uh, Jack Singlob was uh, there at the time. He was a major, and I dropped some some supplies for some of his people. But they were running operations on the East Coast, and it was so difficult that they just pulled out. Uh, Major, then Major Singlaub, if I recall correctly, was working for CIA at yeah, the time. Yeah, he ran Jack. He was a famous member of the OSS, operated <laughs> right. with mm -hmm. one of the Jedburg teams in France, and later on went to an, uh, an illustrious and somewhat uh, controversial career as yeah. a military intelligence officer. But it, it became more difficult as the time went on to do the operation. And I, I think that uh, in some of the other cases, there were losses due to... Uh, Maybe negligence of the uh, the fact that let me start at the beginning when the, in uh, in August 1950, 14 special agents of CIC, uh, the Counterintelligence Corps, U.S. Army, Japan, 441 CIC, they sent 14 agents over to Korea and they became part of the uh, the the initial development of the first command liaison group. And they formed the first TLO teams, and they went out to both U.S. and Korean units. And they went in and recruited 
wholesale high school classes of young high school students. They were the first TLO line crossers. And many of them worked throughout the uh, the period of hostilities in that, that manner. There were lots of losses, you know, not only from being captured, but some of them just wanted to go back home. I know that. I've had one, uh, someone tell me that I dropped up north and said, well, you know, what re- really was your motivation? He said, I want to go back and see my family. And and he, he appeared two months later, and he was debriefed and everything, and hadn't been captured, but that that's what his motivation was. So he had a lot of success uh, in uh, in. Some of the orientations are, were more successful than you know across the board because we did lose a lot of people. And at the same time, we also collected a lot of valuable intelligence. Mr. Lee, you mentioned one case of sabotage that uh, that occurred at one point. Can you tell us about that? So I, as I mentioned earlier, I went on every mission to the target. And then I put the uh, pat on the back of the agents jumping off the airplane. And then I did it for for each mission that we set. Uh, we had a young uh, U.S. Army PFC just joined the Army, and he came to, came to Korea as a truck driver, supply truck driver. Uh, I think his name was Crab, and uh, finished college and just got married with his co-ed, and he came to Korea <laughs> doing the job. And he kept saying, Mr. Lee, I'd like to go and go see what, what, what you can see from airplane at night. So I said, uh, this is my country. I'm doing that because it's my country. But you're not. You're, you're from the uh, United States. You're American. There's no need for you to do take such a dangerous uh, act. And I said, plus, you just got married. You're a married man. So there's no, no reason why you should take a chance. But kept asking me to uh, let him go on the mission just as one time. So I said, you go to talk to Colonel uh, Holden, uh, or Dupe, I'm sorry, to Colonel Dupe, uh, op- op- operations officer, to get the permission. So he went to talk to Colonel Dupe. And Colonel Dupe called me up and says, said, Mr. Lee, Jimmy Lee, why don't you let him go one time? He, after all, he's helping you guys out quite a bit. So, okay. I briefed uh, Pat on the back of uh, agents getting on the airplane at the airport, and then he got on the airplane. I was supposed to go on the airplane. But as I said, Gerard mentioned a while back, one of a couple of them, the Chinese, threw a hand grenade back into the uh, airplane when they jumped off the airplane, so it was sabotage. I think there's only about one that one team did, did that, and then there's only aircraft that we we lost during mm-hmm. the war, and uh, so I feel I felt like I was a guilty person. Really, I couldn't sleep at night because he went, he forced me out, and he, he went my place. I was supposed to go on a uh, mission to the point. But anyway. Uh, Colonel uh, Dupe and then whoever was commanding general, uh, general uh, commanding officer, told me not to go on the mission any longer. It's not because they 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 don't want me to take a chance, but I know too much about the operation so forth. So from now on, you pat <laughs> on the back before they get on the airplane, and then you don't get go on the mission anymore. 
Well, uh, it's sort of a grim story. Um, last two yeah. questions, and maybe we can hopefully lighten the mood a little bit after that, that sobering story. Um, Colonel Dillard, one thing I noticed in your, in your book um, on this, and I should take the opportunity to mention, you've written a book called Tiger Hunters, Special right. Operations in Korea Behind the Lines of, China, of the Chinese and North Korean Forces, 1950 to 1953. One of the things I noted with interest in your book was your discussion of pigeons in the context of the 82, 8240th. Can you tell us just uh, for a minute about what that's all about? Yes. Uh, I think the 8240th Army it was the last unit to use carrier pigeons. And uh, the idea was to try and determine, did our agents land okay? And did they go to their target? So the uh, the conception at that point was we'd equip uh, the each team with a pair of pigeons, and after they landed, they would release one pigeon at daylight because they don't fly at night. The pigeons and don't fly. The at pigeons, night. and it would let us know that they did land safely. And then the second pigeon would be released, uh, you know, within 24 hours to let us know they reached their target. And the problem we had was, and I had to caution them at the last minute: is do not eat the pigeon. <laughs> Because we know that that's happened, but the uh, a little uh, aside to that is the army sent over, I think about eighty two pigeons they had trained, and uh, that didn't work out. So Eighth Army organized its own uh, pigeon loft and had uh, a, a training center set up in Japan. And they began to train and extend the distance, the return distance for the pigeons. And we had about uh, uh, up to 250-mile range with the, cha- the, pre- the pigeons that were uh, trained in Japan. And uh, the, the pigeoners, then we got a few that were more experienced in handling them. But it's a whole new uh, endeavor. I could talk about that for a couple of hours on uh, handling uh, the pigeons, but uh, the uh, Fort uh, Monmouth, New Jersey, was the signal center, and they finally deactivated their operation, in, uh, I think, while the Korean War was still uh, going on. Well, I think we all just learned something <clears throat> there. Um, last question for, for both of you. Looking back on it, and gosh, it's been uh, coming up on 60 years now since the end of the Korean War. Um, looking back on it, what... What contribution did these? Do you believe that these agent operations and these partisan operations uh, made to the Korean War? What does this all add up to in your minds? My my personal opinion that the Chinese the operation we had that helped uh, uh, United Nations U.S. forces and the Koreans fighting against Chinese communist forces moving in, moving to the south. So I think that. Our work made a contribution to the success of our uh, mission to stop communists moving any further south. I think it was a successful operation. I agree with what uh, Mr. Lee says. I would add that for the Inchon Landing, Commander Park, uh, not Park Clark, Commander Clark had uh, been sent over, but he knew about the date of the Incheon landing, and he went over and, and with a couple of Koreans, and I think a Japanese uh, officer, and they liaison with some partisans at uh, off the coast at Walmido in Palmido, and a recon- reconnaissance. Uh, they did a lot of recon in that area to gather data that the fleet would use on their invasion. They 
They captured the island of Palmido and activated the searchlight so that the fleet could guide on that, which you'd think it was a total marine operation, but that ain't so. Uh, I mean, the force was, but they did all the groundwork. Uh, he then went up to uh, Tewado, which is just off the mouth of the Yellow River, and he was one of the first to report Chinese coming into North Korea. This was reported by our unit. There's no question about that. How they interpret it in Japan is another question. So I think that using those examples that can, during the, 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 the um, period of hostilities, their unit with either intelligence gathering or partisan operations contributed a hell of a lot to uh, the, uh, the war effort. And as I said earlier, the partisan forces on the West Coast there were really the force on the left flank of First Corps that occupied the uh, required the Chinese to have a full division over there protecting the, co- the West Coast and that area around the Wangai province. So it was a formidable force, particularly as the, the we began to get into late uh, early 53 with the inclusion of the partisan forces as part of the overall order battle plan and being one of the flank forces with I-Corps. And a lot of people, they, they get focused on, well, gee, you lost all these people. You don't make an omelet without breaking an egg. And yes, it's going to happen. But I think that, that we did a good job and we're proud of it and we're very sorry for any loss. And we still have about eight of the special operations people that are missing in action. And we know that uh, except for Crab, they were alive when they were in the hands of the either North Korean or Chinese. Well, thank you very much. You you both have much to be proud of. Let me let me thank you for your service and your contributions in both in the Korean War and also subsequently. And thank you also for a wonderful conversation here at the International Spy Museum. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.